going to move forward tonight, finishing the book of Hebrews. We're going to do chapter 13 in one sitting. And so I want you to turn there, grab your Bible, turn to Hebrews 13, and uh, I want you to follow along with me. Let's do a Bible study. You know, I, I go through books on Wednesday night. The reason I go through whole books is because Paul the Apostle, uh, for one example, told the Jerusalem elders when he was about to leave, or the Ephesian elders, rather, when he was about to leave Ephesus and probably never see their faces again, he said to them, I failed not to teach you the whole counsel of God. So a turning point is not a church where we just major on or constantly harp on a few pet verses. We go through the whole counsel of God, whole books, because God the Father gave us the whole thing, and all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Well, if it's all profitable, then we need to be profiting from all of it, right? So let's, uh, let me just real quickly recap a little bit from last time together, and let's finish out the book of Hebrews tonight. Last time, we finished chapter 12 with the writer again encouraging his Jewish leader or readers to whom this book was primarily written to the Jewish people, the Hebrews, to endure tough times and to see the tough times as being the discipline of God and to take very seriously the claims of Jesus Christ. Um, for instance, the verse, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Uh, we won't escape judgment if we neglect salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, as we close out the book of Hebrews with the final chapter 13, the apostle is really going to kind of hopscotch through the first few verses. He's going to hit on a, a different theme in every verse for about the next seven verses, but they all really relate to the very first verse, which is this one. So look at Hebrews 13 and verse one. He says, let brotherly love continue. Now, the word continue lets us know that love was already there or it wouldn't be able to continue. And he's saying, what is already there, don't let it fade away. Never let love in your congregation, love amongst you, never let it fade away. Uh, we think of John's repeated admonition where he says, for example, uh, in 1 John 2 verse 10, he who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So love is the evidence, the evidence of a genuine Christian faith. And Jesus said the same thing. Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then in John thirteen thirty five, he said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my followers, my disciples, not how smart you are, not how many degrees you have, not where you go to church, not how much money you have, not your pedigree, not the way you look, but what is the primary evidence of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? How you love one another. Moses gave us 10 commandments. Jesus gave us only one, and that's the one, love one another. Now, the admonitions that follow really are springboards from that one first verse. Then next, another manifestation of love is hospitality. He says in verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, 
I know you might think he's talking about real angels there, and I'm not saying he's not. But most commentators believe the writer is talking about entertaining traveling Christian ministers that he refers to as angels. The Greek word is angelos, and it simply means messenger. That's it. So a traveling Christian minister could easily be uh, a messenger. The word angels simply means uh, a messenger with a message. So uh, it may have been the writer's uh, in the writer's mind when he said you might be entertaining angels unaware. I think he was probably talking about when you know of a traveling Christian minister, be sure you're hospitable, let them in because they have been sent. They are messengers with the message of God. Now we do note that Abraham, for instance, looked up one day and there was three what looked like men who had walked up to his tent and it really was angels. So it's not impossible for that to happen to us. But the best meaning is likely that the writer is encouraging hospitality towards God's ambassadors that would absolutely bring on your household a tremendous blessing. Because Jesus said, whoever receives you, my sent ones, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Now, then another exhortation that is also linked to love in verse 3. Look at verse 3, Hebrews 13. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and who are mistreated, those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now, this is powerful. It's so easy for those of us in the West, for example, in America, uh, England, and what we call the West, to kind of not not really think much about those who are paying a very high price for the cause of Christ in different parts of the world. They really are imprisoned. As a matter of fact, as I speak right now, there are people in prison. There are brothers and sisters in prison paying a very, very high price for their walk with Christ. And the apostle says, since we're all a part of the same body of Christ, we are in a way experiencing their pain with them. Now think of it this way. If, the, if, if your foot is hurting right now, your whole body is aware of it, right? Your whole body is brought to attention and, and brought into the effort of somehow bringing healing to the foot. It's, it's just very simple. We are the body of Christ. Some are eyes, some are ears, some are hands, some are feet. But we all comprise the universal body of Christ, which is one of Paul's favorite metaphors or illustrations for the church. We are a body. And he says, if one weeps, we all weep. If one rejoices, we all rejoice. And in the same way, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that right now, around the world, there are people in prison for their faith, being persecuted, suffering great pains, losing their belongings, losing their jobs. And the apostle says, remember them. Now that's love. Remember them since you yourselves are in the body also. So if they hurt, we all hurt. Well, how do we remember them? Well, we pray for them. And when the opportunity arises, we may send finances to some part of the world that is ministering to these people who are under persecution. But the last thing we should do is forget about them. Now, next, a word about sexual purity. So you notice he just 
going from one subject to the next, kind of, like I said, hopscotching from one theme to the next. And he's hitting on these, these little brief one verse exhortations. So he goes from those that are suffering for the faith to a word about sexual purity. He says in 13 verse four, look at it. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now let's just unpack this verse real quickly. First, marriage was God's idea. No man came up with it. Adam didn't come up with it. It was God's idea. And God performed the first wedding in the garden of Eden between Adam and Eve, the first couple. And so Because it's a creation of God, it is to be held in high honor, which our culture right now is not doing uh, for sure. But for the believer, we're to hold marriage in honor among all. It's an honorable institution without which any society is absolutely going to fall apart. Now, it is within the confines of marriage and only the confines of marriage that sexual union has been designed for. That's what he's telling us in verse four. Now, now listen carefully to me because I'm going to go where more and more churches are not going, but I'm a teacher and a minister of the word of God. And we need to go to the word of God in this matter of sexuality and marriage and uh, fornication, adultery, and the things the Bible clearly talks about. So only the confines of marriage uh, is what sexual union has been designed for. And in case you don't believe that, the apostle has a warning. Listen to the warning. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Now, that's two categories. The sexually immoral is referring to the sin of fornication. And the Greek word is pornos. Um, Pornos. That's where we get the word pornography. And we've already touched on this in this series uh, a few chapters earlier. Uh, Pornography. So, Pornos means immoral. Graphi or graphos is picture. So pornography is an immoral picture. That's where we get the word. But now fornication is sex outside of marriage. And Paul the Apostle is crystal clear on this when he writes to the Corinthians. So let's just digress for a minute, chase this verse down a little bit and expand on it. And see what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's speaking to some of them, and you'll notice he's speaking to some of them that have decided all things are lawful for me. That's in verse 12. He says, all things might be lawful, but not all things are expedient. But what he's addressing is an attitude that had begun to uh, infiltrate the Corinthian church, that because they were under grace that all things were lawful for them. They weren't under the law. So they could do things like uh, going into the sin of fornication and they would just say, well, all things are lawful for me because I'm under, uh, under grace and not under law. And that's what was going on. And that's in verse 12, chapter six. But if you go a little bit earlier, back up a little bit, he has just told them three verses earlier, watch this carefully, that neither fornicators, those practicing sex before marriage, or adulterers, those going outside of marriage for a sexual union that is unlawful, or homosexuals would inherit the kingdom of God. He's not mincing. He's not apologizing. He says it. Fornicators, 
nor adulterers, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, apparently his reason was this notion that because I'm living under grace and not under law, I can go off into these different sexual sins and I'm okay with God. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay because God's okay with me because I'm under grace. So I can do these things. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Uh, Grace does not give you license to go into sexual sin. So he says in verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, that is fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, let me stop here and show you something. A lot of people just who become Christians or think they're Christians, they, they read what the Bible says about fornication, for instance, sex outside of marriage, and they say, uh, man, that, that is a really hard call. I, I don't know why God would say that. That's mean. And, and, and they, they hear the commandment, but they don't understand what is behind it. And we just read God's reason for the sexual prohibitions. He says, because the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but your body is meant for the Lord. It's his body. He goes on to say later, the body has been bought. Your body, my body has been bought with a price. What was the price? The price was the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And with the shed blood of Jesus, our bodies were purchased. So they are not ours. My body isn't mine. Your body isn't yours. No, no, no. The biblical understanding here is that our bodies are the Lord's. They belong to him. So when we say, it's my body, I can do what I want with it. If you're a believer, that's not a true statement. Because your body is not yours. And you can't do what you want with it. It's the Lord's. And we are to glorify the Lord with our bodies and with our spirits. The Bible says. Now look what he says in verse 15. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So therefore, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. The word is strong. Flee is strong. It it, it means to run as if you are in terror. You are terrified of something. Run Run from it as if you are in great danger. Flee from it. That's the message. Some sins were to fight and other sins require flight. So when you're in a battle with the devil, it's either fight or flight. And and it depends on what the battle is. For instance, if I'm in a battle with fear, then I am to face that fear, face it down, look it right in the eye and say, in the name of Jesus, I haven't been given a spirit of fear, but a power, love and a sound mind. And I will not be afraid. So we face it down. And, And that's how the battle with fear might be. But when it's a battle with fornication, sexual sin, we're not to fight. We're to practice flight because you will not win the debate. You will be overwhelmed with desire, emotion, irrational thinking, seduction. So he says, don't, don't stand in the presence of that temptation. It's not for you to fight. It's for you to practice flight. Because he says, here's why in verse 18, the second half of 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Watch this. But the sexually immoral person is sinning against his own body. Now that's powerful. 
See, if you go kill somebody, that's not against your body. If you go steal something, that's not against your body. But sexual sin is unique in that it's not only a sin against God, but it's a sin against your own body. Uh, And we know that this is true in a lot of different ways it's true. We know that sexual sin works against our bodies, for instance, by the multitude of STDs you can get in this day. I think last time I looked, there was like 33 of, 33 of them. And in the early 60s, there were only two. But now there's 33. And it's also again a sin against your soul. For no one practicing fornication can enjoy relationship with God. You can't do it. Or homosexuality. Or adultery. All of those sins will break your relationship with God. So you're going to have to trade. You're going to have to make a trade. Christ for fornication. Christ for adultery. Christ for homosexuality. But the two cannot coexist. So he says in verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And how do you do it? By being walking in sexual purity. And, and not perfection, but purity. You, you're, you're, you have given yourself to Christ. You're his. Your body is his. Your soul is his. Your spirit is his. So we're to glorify God, not just in our body, but he says also in our spirits. We're to glorify God. Now back to Hebrews 13, verse 4, the apostle tells us God will judge adulterers, he will judge fornicators, and earlier in the chapter, he will judge those practicing homosexuality. You may think you're getting away with it, but as the Bible says in the Old Testament, uh, be sure your sin will find you out. It will find you out. Fornication will find you out. Adultery will find you out. It will come out. Uh, homosexuality, it'll, it'll find you out. Your sin will find you out. You can hide for a while, but you can't hide forever. And you can hide from men, but you can't hide from God. And that's what he's saying in Hebrews 13, verse 4. Now, moving on to verse 5 and 6, the writer touches on the sin of covetousness. So here he goes into yet another theme, another topic. And he says in verse 5 and 6, keep your life free from love of money. Not just free from sexual sin, but free from covetousness. Free from love of money, which is what covetousness is, and be content with what you have, for he has promised, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Man can't do anything to you that God does not allow. Now, let me define covetousness a little further. Covetousness is when you are dominated by your desire for financial gain. Now, let me give you a little statement that uh, is worth remembering. Something dominates everybody's day. Something dominates everybody's day in the arena of your thoughts and your heart. Some people wake up and God dominates their day. Seeking Jesus dominates their day. Others wake up and, and, and uh, their job dominates their day. It's all they think about. It's all they chase after. But some people wake up and their number one, what, what number one dominates their heart, their thoughts, their strength, their whole, what their whole life is about is chasing after money. 
And that's what covetousness is, is when material things dominate your day. It's all you think about. It's all you live for. To acquire, to attain, to, to get more financial, material things. So he says, don't let that be. Now, notice he said, I've got something better than chasing after money uh, that'll, that'll bless you way more. And he says, be content with what you have. So he goes from having a lust for material things to being a person who is content. And contentment is the polar opposite of covetousness. Contentment simply means I'm satisfied. It's not that I don't have a desire for perhaps more things in my life. He's not running ambition down, but he's saying, you've learned to be thankful for what you have. You're satisfied. You're not driven to constantly acquire more stuff. And then when you get that stuff, you want more. And then when you get that stuff, you want more. You're always wanting more of this, that, and the other, and you're never content. But he says, listen, be content. If you're a believer, God has promised, I'm never going to walk out on you. I'm never going to leave you without your needs taken care of. So don't be ruled by covetousness. And Jesus taught this very same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 6, you'll find that Jesus says four times, do not worry. He says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, and don't worry about your future. Don't worry, don't worry, do not worry, do not worry. And really at the, at the core of his command for believers of his to not worry, at the very core of it is don't worry about stuff. Don't worry about having enough things. Because if you'll seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and me, I will see to it that all the things the world is clamoring to constantly acquire will be added to you as a side benefit. You will have your needs taken care of. Jesus said, don't worry at all about having enough food and clothing. Why be like the heathen? For they take pride in all these things and they are deeply concerned about them. But your heavenly father already knows perfectly well that you need them. Can I read that again? Your heavenly father already knows exactly what you need. He already knows before you even ask him. And he will give them to you if you give him first place in your life and live as he wants you to. God will take care of you. So don't constantly worry otherwise, but boldly say, the Lord is my helper. So I'm free since I'm not worrying about these things and I'm not chasing these things. I'm totally free to fully focus on chasing after Christ, which Mary did in Mary and Martha's home when Jesus came there. And Mary was sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching. And Jesus said, she's chosen the good part and it will never be taken away from her. And that was a word to all of God's children. When you chase after him, when you seek him first, uh, then you have chosen what is good and best, and it will never be taken away from you. But material things can be taken away from you like that. Jesus said, build your life on what cannot be taken away from you. Don't walk in covetousness. And then next in verse 7, as we move through chapter 13 of Hebrews, the apostle briefly turns to the subject of spiritual leadership, which he's going to come back to a little bit later in this chapter. But he says in verse 7, 
Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now you will note that he's talking about leaders in the past tense. Because he didn't say, remember the leaders who are speaking to you now. But it's past tense. Remember your leaders who spoke to you, who spoke in the past to you. Now, this is pointing back to leaders, most commentators believe, that were now gone. One commentator thinks this may refer to James, the brother of John, and to James commonly called the first bishop or pastor of the Jerusalem church both of whom had been put to death before this epistle was written. So he says, I want you to follow the faith and the example they left for you before they were martyred. Remember how they lived. Remember how they taught. Pattern your lives after them, for they followed after Christ. And as they followed Christ, you can follow them. So it's a, it's a little prod to look back and say, wow, The legacy of my former leaders is worth remembering and patterning my life after. Now, the next verse connects what just came before it. Remember those who spoke the word to you and what will follow. Here's verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, I believe what he's saying here is this. Though some of your former leaders are gone, The Lord Jesus Christ is not gone. He is your steady, unchanging, ever-present Savior. He's there. He's there yesterday. He's there today. He's there forever. And though people come and go in your life, Jesus is the rock that is the same yesterday, the same today, and the same forever. And since he doesn't change, and this is referring to what he's about to go into in verse 9 now. He's setting us up for verse 9. Since Jesus doesn't change, but he's always the same, neither does his teaching change, which is why you should avoid any teaching that deviates from what Jesus taught us. So look at verse 9. He's leading into verse 9. Here he says to the believers, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Don't be led away. Don't be led astray. Watch out for strange teaching that the former leaders did not share with you and that Jesus Christ did not teach you. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, verse 9, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, this is a reference to the false teaching that old covenant ceremonial laws having to do with what you eat and what you drink and so on and so forth must be mixed in with new covenant grace in order for you to be saved. So he's pointing to what we call the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were Jewish men who literally would follow Paul the Apostle around. Paul the Apostle would say, go to Philippi. And when he left Philippi, these these uh, Judaizers, these Jewish men who rejected Christ and demanded that Moses be followed, would go in behind Paul and confuse his converts and try to teach them that, well, you know, there might be something to this Jesus stuff, but if you don't mix Mosaic teaching and the old law with grace, you cannot be saved. That's who he's warning about here. And so he's saying, don't let them affect you. 
All those things, the festivals, the feasts, the ceremonies, all those things, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Passover, the the Day of Atonement, all of those things, we've already learned going through the book of Hebrews, they are passe. They have been done away with by Jesus Christ. All they were is types and shadows that pointed to the coming of Christ. That's it. The Passover, that pointed to the coming of Christ. The day of atonement, the animal being sacrificed, the blood being sprinkled on the altar in the Holy of Holies. That all pointed to the coming of Christ. Paul says they were types and they were shadows, but they were not the substance. And the substance is Christ. And that's what Hebrews is all about. Hebrews is all about telling these old covenant Hebrew Jewish men and women, hey, you were raised on Moses. You were raised on the feasts. You were raised on the ceremonies. You were raised on the animal sacrifices. But you need to understand that all those things were put there by God to point to the coming of Christ. And once Christ came and shed his blood on the cross and rose from the dead, all of those ceremonies, all of those feasts, all of those animal sacrifices were done away with because now the substance has arrived. And the substance was Christ. That's why he says in Colossians 2, verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. There he's talking about ceremonial observances there. He says in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, there you go, This is Colossians, same as Hebrews. The substance belongs to Christ. So once Christ came, he was the fulfillment of the law. He was the fulfillment of the ceremonies. He was the fulfillment of all the feasts. Let me make it real simple. Say you're starving. You're really, really hungry. You haven't had anything to eat all day. And I go to Burger King and I get a Whopper. I have a Whopper, all right? And I come to you with a Whopper and I hold it up. And I hold it up towards the sun. So you're looking at the Whopper in my hand, but the sun, of course, hits it, and the shadow of the Whopper is on the ground. You see the shadow of the Burger King Whopper on the ground. Now, let me ask you, you're starving. What are you going to want? Are you going to want the shadow, or are you going to want the real thing? Now, that may be kind of a, I don't know, reckless illustration, but it's really the truth in, in a very powerful way. Because you see, all those ceremonies were pointing to Christ. And they were only shadows of what was to come. And once Jesus came, what do you want? Do you want what they all pointed to? Or do you want the shadow? You don't want the shadow. You want the real thing. And the real thing was Christ. And that's what Hebrews is all about. In Hebrews 8, we've already noted the writer saying, by calling this covenant New, that is the New Testament, he has made the first one, the Old Testament, obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So the Jewish Christians were were to totally shun any message that steered them away from Paul's mantra. Here it was, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of your own good deeds, lest any man should boast that he had something to do with his salvation. So the new covenant is all grace, 
all of him, none of me, all of grace, none of law. Then next, in keeping with his recurring theme throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer will tell us that the Old Testament sacrifices, once again, were only a type and shadow of the ultimate sacrifice that would be made for us, the death of Jesus on the cross. The Old Testament sacrifices of animals never remove their sin. No, no, no. No. The Old Testament sacrifices only covered their sin. Only the blood of Jesus removes the sin. That was the difference. When that bull was sacrificed and the blood was sprinkled on the altar in the Holy of Holies, it did not remove their sin. It covered it. But when Jesus shed his innocent blood on the cross and we look to him by faith and say, I believe in you as my Savior and Lord, I repent of my sin and I ask you to forgive me. Not only does his sin cover it or his blood cover it, but his blood totally removes your sin so that it's as if it never happened. So look at verse 11 and let's read it. He says, under the system of Jewish laws, the high priest brought the blood of the slain animals into the sanctuary as a sacrifice for sin. And then the bodies of the animals were burned outside the city. That is why Jesus suffered and died outside the city, where his blood washed our sins away. There you have it. Totally removed our sins. So let us go out to him beyond the city walls, that is, outside the interests of this world, being willing to be despised, to suffer with him there, bearing his shame. For this world, verse 14, for this world is not our home. We are looking forward to our everlasting home in heaven. Oh man, what a great, great, great word. So catch this now. When the blood of the animal had been sprinkled on the altar in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, The remaining body of the animal was taken outside the city and burned completely outside the city. Likewise, when Jesus died, it was outside the gates of the city. He died on Golgotha, the place of the skull, which was outside the city gates. And this illustrates how those who choose to walk with him must also follow him outside the gates of the city. Now, I see a picture here. I see an illustration. There's a powerful truth here. That is, we've got to be willing to go outside the city, forsake the world, forsake sinful pleasures, forsake our own way, forsake our own will, and forsake the approval of men and and pursue Jesus outside the city, outside of the world, go to his place where he was shamed, where he bore the the wrath of men, where he was rejected of men, where nobody wanted, despised and rejected of men. We follow him outside the city. We pick up our cross daily and follow him, no matter what the world says, no matter what the world does. No matter what price we have to pay, we follow Jesus, we pursue him, we go to him outside the city, outside the confines of this world. Because as the writer said, this world is not our home. It's not our home. So the writer says in verse 13 of Hebrews 13, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. 
For here we have no lasting city. In this world, we don't have an eternal city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. So we're following Jesus outside the city, which is a picture of leaving this world and knowing this world is not our home and knowing we're waiting on a city whose builder and maker is God. And of course, that's the heavenly Jerusalem, the holy city that God has built for the redeemed. And I can't wait to walk the golden streets of that city. No more pain, no more sickness, no more devil, no more flesh, no more temptation, no more war, no more hatred, no more struggle, no more warfare, spiritually speaking, none of that. For we will be in a place of perfect bliss, whose builder and maker is God. And that is what we wait for. Now, because of time, I want to read through the final verses and just comment a little bit as we go along. He says in verse 16, don't forget to do good and to share with what you have with those in need for such sacrifices are very pleasing to him. Now catch that. He's again giving us little one verse exhortations. And he says, when we show love to others by helping them, not just with a God bless you, I'm I'm going to pray for you, though I have seen that you've got a real physical, practical need, I'm just going to bless you and pray for you. James talked about this in his epistle. No, we do more than that. He says, when we share with those who are in need, that is a sacrifice that is a blessing and pleasing to God. And so if we want to be God pleasers, that's one way to do it. When you see somebody in need, walk in wisdom, but, but reach out and try to help them with that need. And, and, and it's, a, it's a great joy to give. Giving uh, is an addiction. Once you really become a giver and begin to help people with what you have, that's what Christianity, that's practical Christianity at work. It says of Jesus, he did the same thing. Uh, the, the summation of his life in the Bible is he went about everywhere doing good. That's what this is talking about. He did good things for people. He met practical needs. He went about everywhere doing good things for others and healing those who are oppressed of the devil. So he met practical needs and he met spiritual needs. And he is our example. Now in verse 17, he goes again into talking about spiritual leadership. He says, obey your spiritual leaders and be willing to do what they say. For their work is to watch over your souls. And God will judge them on how well they do this. Give them reason to report joyfully about you to the Lord and not with sorrow. For then you will suffer for it too. Then you will suffer for it too. Now, the word obey here means... As long, it's not talking about blind obedience. It's not talking about obeying a spiritual leader if they're asking you to do something that is not biblical or right. But it's saying, as long as your leaders are leading you in the way of Christ, teaching you the words of Christ, watching over your soul as those that are going to have to give an account, let them do it, he says, with joy and not with grief. The word grief there means moaning. Don't let your spiritual leaders, your church leaders, for example, lead you with moaning. Don't let it be a grief to them. 
But let it be a joy to them because he says, if they are leading by grief, by moaning, you're going to suffer for it too. Why? Because they're not going to be able to lead their best. They're not going to be able to give you their best. They're not going to be able to, to, to teach as well as they could if they were full of joy. If they're being burdened down with unjust criticism, with rebellion, with sin in the camp, with things that upset a body of believers, if that's what, if, if that's what the leader is experiencing, then he's going to be a moaning leader, a grieving leader, and not a joyful leader. And he says, that is not going to work for your good. They're watching over your soul. So let them do it with joy. Let them do it with joy. Don't, don't have groaning leaders. Don't let your leaders be groaning leaders. Good advice. Pray for your leadership. I'm going to tell you, as your pastor, I need your prayers. I pray for you. I trust you pray for me because we're in this together. We're a church family. And I, and I pray that you pray for me. I, I always need your prayers. And for our pastoral staff, our elders, our office staff, all of us, as we minister to you, we need your ministry as well. We need you to pray for us. We don't want to be moaning, groaning leaders. We want to be joyful leaders. Amen. Then verse 18 and 19 says, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and we desire to live honorably in every way. And I particularly urge you to pray so that I I may be restored to you soon. So he's essentially saying there what I just said to you. Um, uh, Rather than having groaning, moaning leaders, pray for us. Rather than criticizing, pray for us. And hold us up in prayer because uh, we're doing our best to walk with a clear conscience and lead you. And then the benediction comes in verses 20 to 21. And you might want to read this out loud with me there in your living room. Let's read the benediction. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And let me just read to you now the last three verses, and then we're done with Hebrews, the beautiful, powerful, deep, profound book of Hebrews. Verse 22, brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. Receive what I've said. For in fact, I've written to you quite briefly. I would disagree with that. This was not brief. Verse 23, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and greet all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Amen. Well, I hope uh, one thing you've gotten out of this incredible series in the book of Hebrews is this, that Jesus is better than the old covenant in every single possible way. And thank God we're in the new covenant with a better blood, a better mediator, a better promises, better everything. And so I I pray this fed your spirit and soul like it did mine. And I look so, so forward to being with you next time. And once again, let's pray. We get a good report on May 18th from Governor Abbott, and we'll be able to come to you with some definitive 
directions on our regathering together in person in the very near future. Until then, know that we love you, we miss you, and look forward to seeing you very soon. God bless. Amen.